Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome everyone to the Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Uh, today we have the amazing um, philosopher and history teacher, history uh, teacher of philosophy and history. Oh my gosh, I'm already getting jumbled up. Um, give a bit of an introduction. This is Michael Granado. Uh, he's a naturalist uh, philosopher who uh, is also a history and philosophy educator with um, specializations in philosophy of science. Michael's an advocate for Michael is an advocate for naturalism, which says that all beings and events in the universe and whatever their inherent characters may be are natural in origin. Uh, Michael is doing Plato, Aristotle and Francis Bacon's work by offering free philosophy and history education on his YouTube channel. Links in the description. Uh, Welcome, Michael Granado. Well, uh, thank you. And uh, also, thank you for that very flattering introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> I got a bit tongue-tied there for a second, but that's oh, okay. Sorry oh. about that. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, the Deep Drinks podcast, where we the guests choose their favorite drink and we sip it together uh, while we uh, discuss deep topics. And today we have uh, what you drank in uh, when you're going through your uh, education, right? You're- yes. Um, I started in high school. Uh, that's a different topic for a different day, but uh, <laughs> it also got me through college. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So it's Miller's Light, right? But Miller Light, yeah. Miller Light. Unfortunately, we don't have that in Australia. So we have, I, I could have ordered it in, but I didn't have enough time. But mm. I have the other Miller, Miller Genuine, <laughs> whatever it's called, which I think might be pretty similar. But because I'm an Australian, uh, and this interview might go for a while. I've double parked. Uh, nice. I think that's important. So I've got two, <laughs> two, two ready to go. And this conversation is going to be awesome, I'm, I'm sure. So I don't know too much about the philosophy of science. Um, uh, and uh, so we're going to do a bit of learning today. Um, but before we jump into the philosophy of science, and we're also going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, I wanted to actually ask about uh, about yourself. Um, what do you believe? Um, are you? Do you have any religious beliefs? Do you... Uh, what got you interested in academic research and study? Why are you a philosopher? <laughs> That's a yeah. Let's uh, unpack that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm uh, in my therapist office. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what is yeah. wrong with you that you became a philosopher? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my wife had a psychology uh, professor once that said that philosophy uh, st- people who philosophize and the study of philosophy stems from a sort of mental illness. Um, I don't necessarily (laughs) agree with that, but I also may or may not prove their point. Um, (laughs) So you agree and you don't agree. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. No, I um, and uh, speaking of mental health, uh, a bit of disclaimer here. Um, What got me into philosophy uh, was largely a result of what happened to me during my childhood. So I will be talking about uh, grief, depression, uh, dealing with loss, just heads up, right? Uh, awesome. All that Thanks fun that. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the United States. If you can't, is the majority of your audience Australian or you get a lot of Americans? Um, a lot of them, no, most of them are American. So oh, okay. uh, I think, uh, yeah, but it's starting to spread worldwide um we're taking over the world slowly (laughs) so uh so you're the one with the accent not me that's good (laughs) Um, (laughs) i grew up in uh the southern united states which commonly referred to as the bible belt uh, in the state of georgia um my mother i was raised 
by a single mother. Uh, my grandparents were also an integral part of my life when I was younger. My grandmother and my grandfather uh, kind of grew up in very impoverished traditions. My mother made very little money, um, raised me by herself, taking care of me, all that good stuff. Um, I, I kind of came to these questions at a really young age, uh, largely as a result of the loss of my grandfather and then subsequently my grandmother, uh, both of whom who helped raise me. My grandmother and grandfather would watch me while my mom went to work, that sort of thing. I lost my grandfather mm -hmm. when I was about four. And that was the first time that I can remember thinking um, about death and about what happens after we die. And of course, being very upset about um, the loss that I had experienced and is, you know, you're talking about a four-year-old anytime you're, you're talking about children kind of confronting grief. It's, it's a really messy, complicated process. And mm. um, my mother was not in a position uh, financially, or, nor did she have really the education background to understand. And when I was younger, not to date myself, but mental health wasn't really like a a thing that people talked about, right? mm. uh, especially in the part of the world where I lived. So um, I, I lost my grandfather and grandmother, grandfather when I was four, grandmother when I was six. Uh, my father was kind of in and out of my life. Um, you know, not to, I don't want to break down and cry on your podcast here. <laughs> um, That's all right. Yeah. You can cry as much as you want. Yeah. It's a safe space. We and we got That's booze, right. so it's all right. Right. Uh, the more booze I drink, the more I'll cry, probably. So, yeah. um, no, my my father is you know story of a lot of uh, young American men, uh, kind of in and out of our life. Uh, was an alcoholic, so speaking of booze, um, and uh, died from uh, liver failure when I was thirteen. So. Mm -hmm. Going into my teenage years, there were a lot of questions about uh, death, about grief. Um, and I didn't really have an outlet for a lot of this stuff. It was, you know, very confusing. Um, and in my community, the, the place where you went to kind of figure that out and to talk through that and to work through that was church. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the local church that I went to kind of became um, what the, the, the place and the pastors there would kind of help me, uh, work through that. I would, I would go and I would meet with them. My mother like took me to meet with them like on a regular basis because I had all these like questions and I was trying to figure all this stuff out. Uh, and so I'd have regular meetings with our local pastors and, uh, you know, ask them about all of these things. And that's kind of what also led me into religion to accept religion. I was a practicing Christian, for most of my life, really. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, in the Methodist church at one point in time, I was consider, considering going into the ministry. Um, I went to theology school, all that good stuff. But yeah, so that's kind of what got me into philosophy. Um, through Christianity, I came to philosophy because the all the questions that I have, they didn't stop, right? One of the biggest questions that I have classically put was is would be the problem of evil. Right? Why do hmm. why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, why do bad things happen to children? Christianity provided a sort of answer to that, of course. But when you're a Christian, the the problem of evil is still a problem, hmm. right? So now the the problem becomes: Well, why did God allow that to happen? Right? 
And so that is through the lens of Christianity that I kind of got introduced to philosophy, mostly when I was in high school. Um, and then when I went to college, my aspiration was to go to college to become a minister. And so I studied philosophy formally at a, uh, at a, a state university. It's not a, it wasn't a Christian university. I got a BA in philosophy. I've always been relatively uh, open-minded, at least I would like to think. And so it was in university that I started getting introduced to all of these kind of non-Christian philosophers. Uh, the philosophy education that I received was kind of focused on the history of Western philosophy specifically. So we started with Plato, Aristotle, made our way through the Middle Ages, and then got into to modern and postmodern philosophy, that sort of thing. Um, after I got my BA is when I went to theology school. And um, again, I'm not, I don't want to get too much into American politics, but this part I am willing to talk about because it's human rights based, right? Um, so roughly the time I went into theology school was when the uh, debates and arguments about uh, gay marriage and the acceptance of homosexuality in the church was kind of like ramping up. And so it was a really big conversation. And the school that I went to, um, Emory University, is kind of the bastion of liberal theology in the South. It was like yeah. the, the, the beacon of hope and, and you know, arguing that that every human being ought to be treated as a human being as radical as that sounds. Right? So radical. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah. So radical. And a lot of the people that I were going there with were people on the LGBT spectrum um, that were also going into the ministry. So there was a lot of fantastic conversations, but at the same time, um, institutionally, I was kind of losing my uh, trust and in, in faith in the, in the church as a, as an institution, in part because I saw how some of these people were being treated as second-class citizens, mm. right? Debates about whether or not they should be in positions of church leadership, whether or not they should be allowed to be pastors. And it's like, what? Mm. What? Like, it was just, it was mind-boggling. Uh, that and combined with the kind of intellectual aspect of learning about the uh, historical origins of the Bible, um, to back up a little bit, and I'm talking a whole lot here, so feel free to go, go, no, go ahead. <laughs> jump in. Um, well, just just quickly, I was going to mention that I, I started laughing at the when you started mentioning that because the LGBT stuff, because I almost had because we we had a plebiscite in Australia where we voted like Australia voted on whether or not um, same sex marriage should um, be recognised as law, and um, we were. I remember being on the precipice of my on my faith at the, at the time, and I remember going into the conversations on Facebook with my Christian friends, and I had majority Christian friends, and I said, mm -hmm. I even put out a little video, and I said, hey, obviously you can make theological claims about this, but if we were to remove those theological claims, are there any downsides to society? And what I got was so many people acting in the worst faith, uh, not wanting to have honest conversations. There was one pastor who was quoting the gay manifesto manifesto. Mm. And, um, yeah, and we pointed out to him, this is a satirical piece from the seventies. And then he would keep using it as if it wasn't a satirical piece. And 
I remember twenty uh, something like twenty three. I went through and counted twenty three people had challenged me because I questioned these things. They challenged me publicly, and then I would start re replying to them politely with littered with smiley faces. And I'm just putting my perspective out, you know. And they would challenge me. And then when we got to a spot where they would have to either admit that they're wrong or come up with another point, they would either delete all their comments or they would stop replying. And I would message them. I would comment them. Twenty three separate people. And I remember this really, really hurt me. And I walked away going is my faith really this dishonest? Like, mm -hmm. is Christianity, like, is this just a club of bigots who believe one thing and are unwilling to change their mind? And it really was a turning point for me in my life because I also, just sorry to, oh, now I'm rambling on. No, no. At the same time, at the same time as this was happening, one of my closest friends from Ministry College, episode one of the Deep Drinks podcast, he, 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 he mentioned to me, he said, what happens if my parents die? Do I just kill myself? And I mm -hmm. said, I said, no, he's like, what do I have to live for? And I was like, what, 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 what do you mean? And, um, and that really got me to like, okay, I need to look into this from a biblical perspective because this man's life on the line. I have other friends whose life's on the line and they're members of the LGBT community. And they're literally like, this is, this is a life or death thing. And, um, and yeah. people were just treating it like memes and, and, um, and saying, why do they have to have Mardi Gras? It's disgusting. And I'm like, whoa, like this is, this is unironically evil. Like, I don't believe in evil, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that was, for me, that was a really big turning point as well in my faith because I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around the Christian community being, being the ones that were being so harmful to, to society and so dishonest. And that mm -hmm. really hurt me. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Tell you, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's definitely relatable. It, for me, it wasn't so much like a challenge to my faith like my own personal faith and spirituality, it was more so like up until that point, I had my natural assumption was because of, of how I grew up, the, 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 the only reason why we had Thanksgiving some years, the only reason why I had Christmas some years was because of the help that the church gave us. And so that was more so like kind of like a don't meet your hero type thing. Like it was a, mm. it was a tremendous, like I got to see the ugly side of the church, mm. like the really ugly side of the church. Um, what, what kind of challenged my faith in theology school was more so the, the theological assumptions that I had brought into it that up until that point hadn't necessarily been challenged. Um, the, the two big ones were, Biblical, this idea of biblical inerrancy was a huge one. Um, in Southern Christianity, specifically in the kind of evangelical flavor of Christianity, there's this idea that the Bible has a kind of a, a, a special, uh, in, in philosophy, I would call this a special ontological status, that it's a, that's a holy book. Uh, yes, it was written by humans, but those humans were inspired. And in some of the church circles that I ran into, the Bible was treated as uh, infallible, mm. right? That it couldn't be wrong. Yeah. And ironically, it was the things that I learned in theology school that started to uh, undermine a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. I remember asking my pastor, I was like, oh, what about the part, parts of the Bible that are wrong? And he said, there are no parts of the Bible that are wrong. It's just that we don't understand why they're right yet. And I was like, <laughs> okay. 
I said, okay. And then I remember going, all right. And I walked away. And then, but years later, when I was saying I was researching the Bible, I was like, no, these can't be right. This is like a married bachelor. This is, this has to be wrong, which is fine. Like, it doesn't mean Christianity is not true. It's just, right. it just means that it's not perfect. Anyway. Yeah. I, and to be clear, uh, I don't, to make it very clear, a lot of the people that I went to school with, the, the school that I went to, there was a very open and welcoming environment. Um, especially for gay people. And a lot of the people that I went to school with are still ministers, but it's a different view of Christianity than um, mm. that's that's commonly presented of, of American evangelicalism, especially. And so I started learning about the history of the Bible, how the Bible was put together, the historical uh, roots of the Bible, cultural uh influences influences from other civilizations like the epic of gilgamesh the enuma Elish, stuff like that um and then the other thing that started to kind of cause a division in my own personal life uh spiritual life was i it was in theology school that i started to specialize in the history of science and i started to focus in on the relationship between science and religion mm -hmm. um at at my in my theology school that was mostly focused on modern science specifically the reception of isaac newton's principia mathematica and the ways in which newton's thought and understanding about the cosmos influenced how we think about god and also about how we interpret the biblical text itself so there's a, a lot of really fascinating dialogue that happens during this period um i'm going to save that for later because i'm about to start talking about galileo and i don't want to start talking <laughs> about galileo yet but to to round out this part of the conversation um after that um i went to and got a uh, uh so i have a master's of historical theology a master's in history uh focused on the history of science specifically the reception of darwinism in 19th century america so more history, science, uh, and relationship between science and religion. Um, and it was after I received my second master's uh, that my mother died. And that was kind of the, spiritually, that's kind of what broke me a little bit. Mm, Not yeah. a little bit, a lot of it. But educational-wise, uh, I'm now working on my uh, PhD in philosophy, went back to philosophy, where I'm kind of focused on what a, a branch of the philosophy of science. Uh, it, it's more of, of a historical bent, I'm focusing on early 20th century conversations by a French philosopher named Gaston Bachelard, who was one of the first people to kind of talk about the philosophical implications of Einstein's theory of relativity and what that means for scientific epistemology and what it also means for other areas that are tangentially related to it, such as uh, ontology and even things like logic and stuff like that. Mm. How, when you, did you have like a, a moment um, or like a, a, like a week period or something where you realized that you no longer believed in God or was it, was it, uh, was it just something that just, came about like did you have like an aha moment or was it something that like a straw that broke the camel's back it was i can't say that there's one particular moment it happened 
over the course of a few years, um, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I remember a lot of the people in our community coming to visit her and them kind of throwing out some religious platitudes to me, like, you know, this is all part of God's plan, which, you know, by the way, religious person, not religious person, don't. It's so insulting. Don't ever eh? say that. Yeah. It's so insulting. Um, or another um, one is like, love the sin, hate the sinner. Right, I right. Like, I feel like yeah. repeating back to them, like, love the, love the, uh, love the believer, hate the God. Because right. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's insulting. It would be so insulting to them, but that would be, it's almost equivalent. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I mean, practically it was the kind of throwing out of religious platitudes, having people pray for me and pray for my mother and eventually like realizing like this means nothing to me like it, it's not you know practically it's not doing anything for me like mm. i could kind of rationalize like okay well the church might reject like have all these debates about homosexuality but you know the church as a political institution can be wrong and i can still believe in all of this stuff right mm. So that, you know, I, I could kind of compartmentalize that in a way. Hmm. Um, I, I think it would have been a different story if I identified as a homosexual and they were telling me that as a person, I'm there's something not right with me inherently. I think I, I'm not to diminish that experience because that would be oh, that yeah. would be horrible. Right. But I could rationalize that. But with what happened with my mother, it just kind of I, I it was a slow realization that intellectually spiritually um that i just didn't didn't believe it anymore hmm. right and then it wasn't doing anything for me personally and that i had really no desire to keep keep trying to like uphold these ideas and beliefs hmm. right well um how did you did, so something that i noticed when i uh, stepped away from my belief system is two things. It was extremely hard. It was one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my life, but it was also one of the most exciting experiences I've, I've ever been through. Did you find that it was, I mean, obviously you're dealing with the grief of your mother, the loss of your mother, but did you find that being able to identify away from your old beliefs was actually a freeing thing or was it, was it hard or how, how do you cope with that emotionally? You know, I I never really experienced it like that. Um, my wife had kind of, you know, not to put words in her mouth, but um, she had a, it was kind of a liberating experience for her. She kind of found a lot of strength in it once she like was able to say, like, I don't believe this anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because this is so much. I just interviewed yeah. like, last episode, oh, sorry, a couple episodes ago, my wife. Uh, interviewed the same thing with her. She said, I think it made me feel better. And I was like, well, yeah. so we have very similar, right. a lot of things in your story are very similar to mine, which is interesting. Yeah, for me, I mean, there was, there, so there was a period where um, it's not that I was angry. I, I'm not like really an angry person, but there was a bit of a existential crisis, I guess would be the the best way to describe it because things that I had held to and believed for so long, I didn't believe those anymore. And anytime that sort of transition happens with a person, regardless of what the belief was, I think it has a tremendous impact on them. 
one of your core ideas and beliefs have fundamentally changed. So you as a person are going to change as a result. But yeah, I can't say that I felt it was all of that was kind of eaten up by my grief. And so mm. I don't think I really processed the processed all of that separately. I think it was just all there kind of wrapped around my own personal history. Yeah. Interesting. How do you feel now though? Now that you've like, how long has it been since you've no longer believed in God? Uh, it's been about, I had to think of what year it was. Um, it's been about five years or so, five, six years. Part of it is, um, part of it's refreshing because I don't have to do as much like mental gymnastics to justify mm. things. Do you find that it's also, um, the questions become more interesting? So like mm. for me, I was, I was, I was not, not fully a fundamentalist. I would have said, I would have, I believed in like Noah's Ark and all that stuff, but I hadn't looked into it. When I looked into it, I quickly stopped believing in Noah's Ark, but, but like I would have, um, you know, I would have, uh, like say someone said, how does Noah's Ark work? I mean, God did it. And then the, that's the end of the conversation, you know, like it's just kind of, but when you look or like, you know, is evolutional creation true? It's like. Um, well, how do you explain this? God did it. And it's like, well, evolution is like, well, actually it's, you know, and you go right into the weeds and the conversation is much more interesting. Um, right. have, you, it's, have you found that as well? That it's like, it's not just that you don't have to jump through hoops. It's that you can explore every avenue without the baggage of having to like cart along this faith that, you know, has to be protected. Yeah, there is a certain amount of intellectual freedom that that sort of mindset allows for because kind of what you were saying if you're not bringing this if you're not bringing certain uh presuppositions to the not to sound like a presuppositionalist um <laughs> but you know if 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 i approach science with the mindset if i approach like biology with the mindset that you know god had created each distinct species as completely separate and that you know they it slowly maybe they changed a little bit over time but not so much like it does kind of open it up in the sense for it allows more and deeper kind of explanations and it allows you to talk about and to explain things on its own terms which leads to more uh robust explanations especially within mm. the natural sciences but also, honestly, the biggest change was not so much in my intellectual curiosity, because I always kind of had that. Um, I was just a naturally curious kid, and I'm a naturally curious adult. And I've even when I was a Christian, I would, you know, stay up till like two o'clock in the morning reading about like the French Revolution just because it like caught my attention, you know. But it the biggest impact was on the the relationships that I had. And mm. how I viewed people, more importantly, mm. um, which is weird to think about. But there was no longer this need to justify my relationships with people because I was going to, like, try to save them or something like that. Mm. Like, I could just enjoy them for being the person that they are. Yeah. And I also and didn't. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, okay. I was going to say, it was like also like if someone is being toxic to your life, 
mm-hmm. you can just remove them from your life. Like I used to have this right. like burden of like, you know, you, you, we should help them and stuff. I was like, no, no. Like I, I came to the realization I have a responsibility um, to my wife um, to be a great partner. If I come home moody because I've got this toxic person in my life that's affecting our relationship, I'm going to cut that toxic person in my life, um, which is, I mean, I don't, it's not like Christians can't do that, but it was for right. me, I, I never used to do that. Um, well, uh, so, so that's a very interesting story. I didn't know any of that. And I'm glad <laughs> I didn't look too much into your story because I, I wanted to be like pleasantly surprised. Uh, but I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an introduction, a short introduction into naturalism and specifically um, the type of naturalism that you subscribe to, which is provisional naturalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does it like, especially on like how it relates, how it conflicts with theistic beliefs? Like, does it conflict with theistic beliefs? Does it not? Yeah. Right. Um, just sort of all the information in your brain in like five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Give us your degree in five minutes. Right. <laughs> Elevate right. your degree. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I could do it in five minutes, but <laughs> no, I can explain okay. some basic stuff. Right? Yeah. So in, in the philosophy of science, um, the discussion about naturalism, uh, this is applied to the scientific method. Uh, like you've probably been hearing about the scientific method since you were in like fifth grade, or this is American mm. grading system, elementary yeah. school, we call it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but everyone knows like, oh, the scientific method. Um, but approaching science from a historical perspective, you can see how the scientific method kind of came about and how it developed. And so approaching it from historical perspective, by by the way, okay. So you have the history of science and you have the philosophy of science and the two are, in my opinion, kind of inseparable. So I'm going to be kind of intermixing the two they of like those. Had, they, pretty, they pretty much like had a baby and then that's what science was, right? right. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. Right. Maybe um, I'm it, getting that confused. No, or like no. natural natural philosophy turned into science, didn't it? Yes. 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 Okay, cool. So philosophy is the mother of all disciplines. And I'm not saying that because I study philosophy, like every discipline came from philosophy. Yeah. Right. And natural philosophy was the branch of philosophy that turned into what we call science today. That happened in about the 19th century. If you were like to go back in time and talk to Isaac Newton and say, what are you studying? Newton would tell you, I'm studying natural philosophy. Like that was the, anyway. So, um, In the philosophy of science, there's several distinctions with respect to naturalism. Uh, The the two big distinctions, you have methodological naturalism and ontological naturalism. And I can already see like people like stop listening when I I start throwing out definitions. Well, I know uh, methodological naturalism, um, I know that, okay, maybe explain the the two briefly, like the difference between the two. Yeah. No worries. Um, you've actually already explained methodological naturalism, I think. Uh, methodological naturalism is an attempt to explain nature in its own terms. So when you look at a natural phenomenon like an apple falling from the tree and you say, what caused that, right? The, the cause that made the apple fall is a, a regular occurring thing that happens in nature. And you Mm -hmm. appeal to that regular occurring thing. Maybe you attach 
uh, a mathematical structure to that regular occurring thing that helps you to explain it. But that's methodological naturalism. Phenomena in nature are explained through uh, appeals to observable empirical data and explanations. Mm -hmm. That's all that it means. As, a, as opposed to supernatural, right? So ontological naturalism, is that supernatural? Method, okay, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> this is why the terms are confusing. Yeah. Um, so methodological naturalism is an attempt to explain stuff in the natural world by appealing to natural forces. Okay. Natural causes. Ontological naturalism takes that a step further and says that ontology is the branch of philosophy that deals with existence. So it takes methodological naturalism a step further and says that the only things which exist are natural things. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't, so wouldn't methodological naturalism also, also inductively, I'm not sure if it's deductively or inductively or whatever, but yeah. arrive at that conclusion as well like if you were to press a methodological naturalist and you would say well you have all this stuff around you that looks natural wouldn't that arrive at the the same conclusion or is uh, it just that ontological naturalists are going are just kind of presupposing that as like right. a, we this is what we, okay so the what you just described is the position that i support which is provisional naturalism <laughs> okay 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 all right uh, so the position i support is that basically that methodological naturalism leads to maybe not a hundred percent ontological naturalism but if you look at the history of science what we see is um, the increasing use of naturalistic explanations to explain any and everything in the world around us and a decrease in supernaturalistic explanations mm. so the probability that ontological naturalism is, is true is is going is, up and the probability okay. that the supernatural exists or interacts with the world is kind of slowly going down if that makes okay. sense. okay so all right so this is a this is something i use all the time um a, a thought experiment i use all the time if me and you were two greeks sitting down on a table and we could see lightning on the mountain thunder on the mountain one of us might say oh that's zeus um making the lightning and one of us might say no that's actually this other pagan god that i worship or something doing this or and someone else might say something else um where in that situation the correct answer might be none of those things we don't know what it is yet uh, and now we understand where lightning and thunder come from and we don't necessarily most people uh, i, I want to be careful not to offend any people who still believe in zeus or apollo or whatever <laughs> but because uh, there are people who do um and pagans I'm but sure um are. but uh let's say you know with, with things we come up with a naturalistic explanation for things and so when someone says something like um you know what is dark matter or something that we don't have an answer for yet that just or what is you know quantum physics like some really bizarre questions in that i stand on the position where i go oh i don't know i don't know i don't know we don't have an explanation yet i'm the greek sitting there pointing at the mountain saying we can't say it's zeus um and is that what you're is that similar what is that what you're saying when you say ontological claims are getting stronger in that every time we come up with an explanation it seems not to be a super it's never been a supernatural explanation is that what um, that's it's more naturalistic. That's a huge part of it. Um, okay. The other part of it is that uh, supernatural explanations have been tried in the past. 
and every time that they've been tried, they've consistently failed. Yeah. So what do you, what do you mean by that? Could you go into yeah. what do you mean by the been tried? You know, you're talking about like James Randi and his like <laughs> million dollar experiment, or what are you talking about there? That's interesting. Yeah. So um, a lot to unpack here, and 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 let me let me back up a little bit because I've I've yeah. thrown a lot of a lot of jargon out, and I want to make it clear that um, how I approach this is not how every philosopher of science will approach this. Um, I belong to a school of thought that believes that. Uh, philosophy of science ought to be grounded in the history of science. So not everybody's going to agree with me there. Um, and to go back to the methodological naturalism distinction, not every philosopher thinks that methodological naturalism leads to ontological naturalism. Even very famous atheist philosophers like Michael Roos will say that science presupposes methodological naturalism. And intrinsically separates itself from religion that and this is this was made famous by uh the biologist stephen jay gould um he called this this is a some more jargon jargon and jargon and jargon he called this non-overlapping magisterium <laughs> okay that science okay. has its area religion has its area and if you can view it as a venn diagram there's there's no overlap they're talking about yeah two very different things. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm disagreeing with that. Right. So right. I, I just want to okay. say that, you know, not there, there are some very prominent philosophers of science and both Gould and Ruse are atheists. So it's not like there's a, mm. anyway, anyway. So what I'm saying is that over the course of the history of science, uh, science gets its start during the Copernican revolution, 17th century, that over the course of the history of science, the explanations that have proven themselves to be the most successful, the most productive, um, the most empirically verified, verifiable, however you want to phrase that, um, the explanations that have the most supporting evidence have been natural explanations. But since I'm a provisional naturalist, I don't rule out the supernatural from the gate. Okay. I leave room for it. And over the course of the history of science, to get back to the question you just asked, there have been supernatural explanations put forth as scientific. Um, a couple of really famous examples, and maybe this will help explain mm. it more. Um, first and foremost would be uh, the explanation that was put forward by Newton um, for God as the kind of maintainer of the superstructure of the universe. And this wasn't like, to be clear, this wasn't Newton saying like, I believe that God exists or I can harmonize God with the universe. This was Newton saying, at some point, my equations break down and there has to be a supernatural force intervening in the universe to put everything back in order. There was a gap in his equations and in the explanatory power of his equations. And Newton believed that only God could fill that gap. Now, this is a classic God of the gaps argument, by the way. Right? Mm, it literally is the God of the gap. Yeah. Right. Really is Newton was the first one to start God of the gaps. But wow. there, there was a, well, I can't say, 
Old Flacious Newton. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, is the first scientist, uh, the yeah, first yeah. modern scientist. To oh, I, I, I was just joking. I'm not gonna. I'm not picking on Newton. Jeez. Uh, yeah. You should pick on him. Uh, by the way, okay. one of the one of the interesting things about the history of science is you learn how weird these people were. Newton was really strange. A very strange really? guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not to sidetrack myself because I, I can talk about the trivial things a lot um he wrote a treatise when he was in college about how college students should not drink because he was up in his laboratory every night like busting out equations and there were people like downstairs having fun and he was basically like you shouldn't be drinking type thing um he said that his greatest accomplishment in life was dying a virgin um no, really? Oh, old fallacious virgin boy Newton. Uh, and he spent most of it. So he developed uh, his theory of gravity by the time he was like 25. Like, it's ridiculous. And he spent the rest of his life studying alchemical text and figuring out like what Moses could tell him about the universe in the Hebrew Bible. Right. Wild stuff. Anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. This, this is the... My my no. students like to get me sidetracked by asking me like no 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 yeah. and I'm and I'm happy for these sidetracks. This is great. I'm I'm learning a lot. I'm on the I'm right on the edge of um of uh of like of following. So like I'm right, this is where I'm being stretched. You know, like Sorry. I'm liking this. This this no, this is good. This is good. This is the same when I had a conversation with Arjuna um with his yeah. um except I was a little bit further along the not understanding. Like I have to rewatch that a few times and it's still, I, I don't understand what he's talking about, but I, I can get pieces out of it. It's a bit easier with you because I kind of understand, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so like getting back to Newton's view of God, um, there was a, a gap in the scientific explanation that you as a 17th century astronomer could legitimately point to and say that, you know, this is a place for God. Mm -hmm. it, in, in other words, it wasn't like a fallacious argument. Like there was legitimately a gap there. Specifically, Newton had a really hard time with the orbit of Mercury. It was, you know, uh, you know, rudimentary telescopes. Mercury, if you look out of the night sky and if you spend every single night staring at Mercury, it, it does some weird things. And so Newton was trying to account for that and he, he couldn't mathematically, which was a problem. Anyway, so that would be one example of, I think that at that time with what Newton knew, it was justifiable to appeal to the supernatural to explain a natural phenomenon, Mercury's orbit. Um, another example of this would be the debate that happened in biology in the 18th and 19th century over vitalism, which was the idea that uh, biological life had this sort of innate animating spirit that couldn't be reduced to a mechanical process mm -hmm. in other words like there was something about the, the they called it like the life force mm. that was not purely physical and this is like the 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 really the explosion of medical technology and um, the medical sciences. So they were. This is where you get all those really awesome drawings of like people being dissected and stuff like that. Um, and they were trying to figure out like what is it that that animates us, 
right? Because, mm. you know, we can break down the heart and we can like trace all of the veins in the human bodies. And they were starting to like dissect the brains and talk about like different parts of the brain, but they still weren't quite sure, like basically like what makes us conscious and what gets us like up and moving. And why is it when I think to move my right arm, my right arm moves, that was a big issue. And so a very popular explanation is that some aspects of human physiology could be explained by appealing to this vitalistic principle, specifically uh, like the motion of the body. Like, why is it that when my, uh, I think to move my left arm, my left arm moves? Like biologists in the 18th century would say, well, if we, if we accept vitalism, that would be a, that would be a, a legitimate scientific explanation. Hmm. Um, and then finally, you, you mentioned James Randi. There was very popular explanations in the 19th century regarding psychology that appealed to uh, supernatural causes. Like they were having legitimate debates about whether or not things like telekinesis were possible. And they were taking claims about telekinesis like super seriously. There's a um, really good book about this. And I can't ever remember the name of the title. It's called uh, Ghost Hunters. And it's about uh, William James, who was a 19th century philosopher. Not the very... TV show, right? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Though not far off. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> it is just involving like legitimate philosophers and scientists uh, testing paranormal claims and taking, uh, treating the paranormal as a topic of scientific investigation. Now, in the case of all three of those examples that I just gave, what eventually happens is naturalistic explanations come in to replace them. Yeah. So the issues surrounding Newton's mathematics were eventually solved by 18th and 19th century astronomers. Mm -hmm. As telescope technology progressed and as uh, new advents in um and mathematics and not to get super boring here but especially the advent of non-euclidean geometry allowed us to to have a, a better explanation for why these things happen in biology it just resulted from a better understanding of human physiology um, specifically the understanding that the brain sends messages to the other parts of the bodies via these neural connections um, in the case of paranormal psychology um all the studies and investigations that were done um were basically inconclusive still mm. are there's still people like uh, i interviewed dr christopher french recently who still investigates paranormal claims that people are making he's done it for like the past 20 years and they're still uh still inconclusive right mm. so provisional naturalism says that take all of that in consideration take the all of the history of science into consideration and what we see is that more and more frequently naturalistic explanations are applied to the world supernatural explanations have proven time and time again to fall short uh, or be in most of the cases be replaced by natural explanations so for approaching this inductively and i present the two pictures to you a naturalistic view of the universe and the supernaturalistic view of the universe. Um, from my perspective, I'm I, I'm not going to rule out the super. I'm not going to say like the supernatural does not exist and will never exist. I don't know that. 
But what mm. I do know is that thus far, uh, naturalistic explanations have prevailed, which to me strengthens a for a weak form of ontological naturalism. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Uh, there's um, th there's there's a thought that I remember hearing from um, someone who debated Kenthoven about creationism and evolution, and that is like creationists will claim that they can explain the same, they can explain things you know, with um, looking at the same evidence has arrived at different conclusions. So for example, they'll find fossils and say, oh, see evidence of Noah's flood. This is why we see a fossil on top of this mountain, right? Because mm -hmm. the whole world was covered. Um, but what I really loved, I think it was King Crocodile who, who did it. He said, um, he said the, the, the power of science is that we can make novel testable predictions. Mm -hmm. So a dog producing a dog kind is not a novel testable prediction. It's testable and it's a prediction but it's not novel so kent hoven <laughs> mr kent mr kent hoven is wrong there but um but uh but for example tiktaalik with the in the evolution you know they, they were like okay we know that this part of the strata is exposed in this location we know that we should see a, an animal fossil between this and between this animal and they went looking for it and they eventually found it like bang right where it's supposed to be that is such a novel testable prediction like for that to be wrong would be very very you know for evolution to be wrong then and there's so many other things and that's what i i i i that's what i love about the scientific um um the scientific method is that's what it does it creates these novel testable predictions and a question i always have for people who subscribe to supernatural things is like obviously true is like i i have family members who 100 believe in the power of ouija boards is like a real thing they, they say they've experienced them they've moved around and i said okay well like we could solve the world's energy crisis so what we could do is we could literally create a giant ouija board and we could connect some like things to it so that it um you know um converted its um supernatural power into kinetic energy and we could create power through that and then we could just sit there all day asking it questions and it would and build kinetic energy and then and uh and i posted this as a bit of a joke on um facebook and and all uh, like a couple of people um including some relatives were like no they're real and blah 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 you don't want to mess with them and stuff and i'm like okay but like well in that case let's solve the world's energy crisis like let's <laughs> let's just build a ouija board that can convert its spiritual energy to a kinetic energy um so yeah i mean it's um well yeah it's it's sorry i'm just ranting now um no I always get to this part of the conversation and the beers the beers or the drinks usually kick in and i end up um, <laughs> even though i've only had one but um <laughs> I, I do want to ask though what do you think uh, -huh. uh naturalist naturalists um naturalism's best critiques so if you were to try and like argue on like play the devil's advocate and you're arguing against yourself what would you say was the like so for, for me i'd say christianity's you know the problem of evil is a good good pushback on christianity what would you say is the pushback against naturalism like something that you would say that uh... yeah uh, it's a good really good question um and this kind of gets back to what you just brought up with respect to um the person that you quoted that science makes uh, novel and testable predictions. Mm. One of the things about naturalistic claims is that, um, so in, in 20th century philosophy of science, one of the big debates was 
and I'll answer your question. I'm just going to do a politician's mm. answer to do a round. No, no, you need to, you need to <laughs> go for it. Uh, one of the big debates in the 20th century philosophy of science was around this problem called demarcation, which is how do you separate science from pseudoscience? What makes, uh, I, and the, the famous, the philosopher that started all this was a philosopher named Karl Popper. And Karl Popper looked, he compared and contrast uh, Einstein's theory of relativity with uh, astrology and with uh, Freud's psychoanalysis. Um, and he says like, well, what makes relativity different? And the conclusion that he came to was that relativity is falsifiable, right? So when Einstein, the history of relativity is super fascinating. If you want to see like what a good scientific theory looks like, study the history of relativity. It, it checks off all the boxes. Because when Einstein for, published his first paper uh, on the electrodynamics of moving bodies in 1906, it's, it's mathematical equations and thought experiments. He, goes, he, he gives his famous like moving trains analogy. Suppose you have uh, three observers, uh, one observers on train A, one observers on train B, and one observers on the platform that the trains are passing by. And, and anyway, I won't get into it. But when Einstein first put forward his theory, it was simply a mathematical explanation that showed that things like uh, absolute simultaneity, that it was theoretically possible for absolute time not to exist and that since we had good we did not have good evidence to believe in an ether which was this theoretical substance that oh. the earth moved through sorry oh flat earth is, i've been talking to flat earth right recently and i've just learned what ether is so yeah I, uh the sorry. mckinley the by the way the mckinley morrison experiment uh showed that if there is an ether that it was having zero effect on the movement of the earth through space. So it was, well, that's how I, that's how I found it is they, they sent me a video debunking that. Um, oh, and then the, of course, of course, at the end is a three minute video. It was like, Oh, the God's perfect. Well, I'm like, Oh, oh my God. Gosh. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. So, so Einstein presents this idea and it's, like I said, it, it's, it's a, it's a mathematical solution to some of the problems that he saw in physics at the time. Um, it was not empirically verified, though, until about 20 years later. Um, specifically, you have author Eddington, a, a British scientist who takes this excursion to uh, observe a solar eclipse because one of Einstein, Einstein's theory made several predictions, novel predictions about how the universe was structured. One of those predictions was that space. Uh, we, we have to start viewing space not as this like flat plane that extends throughout the entire universe, but that parts of space are curved. And that because parts of space are curved, um, light could be curved when moving through those parts of space, specifically uh, areas of space that have a really strong like gravitational pull. And Eddington experimentally verified that during a solar eclipse in 1920-something. Mm -hmm. um, it was possible that when Eddington took those photographs that he would not see light, that he would just see light going straight, that the, the light coming off the sun would not mm -hmm. be curved. But he did, right? And so one of the things that could 
I think naturalism is falsifiable as well. And so one of the critiques against it would be that it's theoretically possible to imagine a aspect of our world whose best explanation is supernatural. In today's scientific climate, I think kind of the last bastion of this would be human consciousness. Mm, yeah. There right? you go. That's like, a, that's a big one. Yeah. So if they were able to definitively show that consciousness cannot be reduced to pure biological processes, I would have to rethink my position. That's, that's an excellent answer. I really, that's a really thought out. That's a great answer. I really appreciate that answer. That's awesome. Cause, mm -hmm. cause I think that's uh consciousness is like a huge problem at the moment. Um, I've been dealing with um, non-dualists at the moment. I'm not dealing with them, but a relative of mine having conversations about, you know, um, the uh, Rupert Spira's ideas. I'm not his ideas, but a type of uh, Eastern philosophy that essentially that there is no matter, that we're all just consciousness. Mm. And that whenever you point to something, well, this is matter, they go, well, that's just, you're experiencing that within consciousness. And and so I've been thinking a lot about consciousness lately. And uh, and it's it's a really hard thing to kind of wrap your head around. Um well, I did want to, I did want to, uh, we got a bunch of questions, um, but I did want to first touch on the resurrection of Jesus, because mm. to me, that is something that I find the most interesting in our back and forth in our email, because I've heard so many times that the historical method for Jesus, Jesus and his life and his resurrection is ironclad. And for me, um, and and for me, I've gone like, like all I can do, I point to Hume or whatever, and uh -huh. I know there's some problems with that. Um, but but like I, I I you mentioned something that really stuck out to me that and that is that um, uh, you said one of my biggest problems is that with the historical criteria used in these arguments, uh, they're not used anywhere else in history. So I'd I'd like to for you to just explain um, explain that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I'm going to take off my philosopher hat and put on my historian hat, Yeah, cool. <laughs> switch gears a little bit. Um, yeah, so this is a, it's, it's an interesting topic, and I, I want to begin by calling attention to what scholarship in and around early Christianity looks like. So what I mean by this partly is you don't have people with the same vested interest studying subjects like World War II that you do with people studying early Christianity for obvious reasons, right? When you're studying early Christianity, you're not just talking about historical events, you're also talking about the beginning of a religion. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the people studying that beginning of the religion belong to that religion. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between, uh, I think there's a categorical difference between history and religion and how both of these disciplines approach the past. Uh, and I, I, that's kind of where my big objection lies. I'm not really, like a lot of times I hear when I, when I listen to people, when I listen to especially like atheist versus theist debate the resurrection, most of the time what I hear is the atheist trying to engage with the theist about details about the gospel account. 
and for the most part, I think that's a fruitless endeavor, mm-hmm. right? Our primary sources about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the gospel accounts, mm-hmm. right? And the gospel accounts present a very particular picture of that. <laughs> uh, my critique lies... To me, if you want to accept the resurrection of Jesus as a matter of faith, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have a horse in that race anymore. You do you, right? But to say that the historical that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event, or that it can be described or supported by historical evidence i think is a misclassification of terms it could okay. be su- it could be supported by religious evidence for mm-hmm. sure it could be supported by like eyewitness testimony i don't have any problem with that right i i think so but yeah isn't everything is like okay so like a big thing is like you know obviously first of all i don't subscribe to the resurrection of jesus i'm just pushing hard um yeah. against this because i want to get some good answers because um i find it interesting but so there's obviously the eyewitness testimony that we have there's the empty tomb reports and there's 11 times um eyewitnesses testified to seeing a resurrected jesus in the gospels um right. so as far as like history goes what else do we have i mean we know the gospels are written 30 to 60 years after the event 65 years after the event but in, in regards to the historical method at the time doesn't jesus fit some of the best like i mean to the, using it in today's standards sure it's crap but in regards to the time like it's as good as anything else we have at that time isn't it like it's like there's not much else that we can right um speak into that point a little bit um and this is something that's easily forgotten um, by people having these conversations. Uh, a, a history professor of mine uh, used to like to say that people of the ancient world inhabited a different universe than we do. Because all the basic assumptions that we have about the world and how the world operates are not shared. Okay. So they lived in a world where angels and demons and spirits were as tangible to them as you know, I'm about to go watch RuPaul's Drag Race after this, as RuPaul's Drag Race is for me, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was a daily aspect of their life. Their life revolved around, typically speaking, revolved around and centered around religious practices that were fundamental to them as people. That's not for us. Now, to answer your question, like, I don't... Th- I don't see a reason arguing with, again, going back to the debates that I've heard, like the disciples believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Like, I don't think you can argue that Mm. I'm, I'm willing to accept them at their word. That's what they, that's what they said. That's what they believed, but that doesn't mean I have to accept the ontological position that resurrection is possible and that the supernatural realm exists and that as a result, God exists, right? There's a lot of, yeah, a lot of leaps there. So historically here, here are my problems with that. I'll lay them out. You, you tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the people that study that make these claims, these sorts of claims are not made anywhere else in the historical scholarship. Like you'll never find 
I can't say never. You might. (laughs) You'd be hard-pressed to find a legitimate academic historian who studies something like World War II um, making the argument that some sort of supernatural event occurred. Mm. They don't do it. Do we... Yeah, I'll let you finish, but we don't have any because we don't have any stories of supernatural events happening, right? God oh, died do. in Auschwitz is the in the is the old saint. Really? Oh, in World tons. War II. Yeah. Really? Uh, well, so I'll I'll give you some examples. And this is why I think the criteria that the people who argue for the resurrection, one of the problems is is that you make that argument, and if you're consistent with that argument, you have to accept a whole host of things. Of like, yeah, like Safra Sai Baba, for example, you know, right. Or India. Yeah. I'll use World War II. So uh, every October, I like to teach classes. I, I call it Spooktober. It's a cheesy high school thing, right? <laughs> and so one of the classes that I taught were, uh, it was a book that was written about Nazis and the occult. And the Nazis were really big into occult sciences. Okay. And there are plenty of very high-ranking Nazi officials, um, specifically um, Goebbels. Jo- is it Joseph Goebbels? I can't remember Goebbels' last name. Uh, as well as uh, some other people in Hitler. Hitler himself, I don't think we have reason to believe it. I'm getting bogged down in the history. But there were some people, very high-up Nazi officials, who believed in the occult power and who believed that they were harnessing occult power to reinforce the Nazi army. And they would do this by finding occult artifacts and, uh, you know, casting like magic spells and building uh, castles that align with certain like geometrical features of the stars. And they had, then they tried to harness that power to, to, to use it against the allied forces. And they believe that. And people like Goebbels would write in his journal about the things that happened to him and that he experienced. There's a reason why he was pursuing it because he believed that some of these things had happened to him. So, so did he have like spiritual things happen? Like, like, you know, he saw an angel or he, he, you know, felt something or something. Are there like events that happened? Like, or is it just that they had some weird faith that they tried to, you know, subscribe? So so that's the, that's the distinction, right? Um, If the evidence that you're presenting is eyewitness testimony, like I can find you plenty of eyewitness testimony about all sorts of things that reportedly happen. Um, But that doesn't mean that those events actually happened. Mm -hmm. But let me, let me present my methodological objections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And then you, you feel free to, to, to come back and play devil's advocate and stuff like that. So um, I, I think that arguments for the resurrection in terms of historical evidence supports the resurrection violates two aspects of historical methodology that again, no, academic historian worth their salt would be willing to violate for for good reason that i'll outline um the first is that it it violates this idea of historical contingency history operates on the assumptions that events that have happened in human history could not have happened um historical facts facts um are changeable or could be changeable from a philosophical perspective, 
right? Nothing in history was supposed to happen. We can describe those events through historical causes, but uh, uh, a historian's not going to say like the Allies were meant to win World War mm. II or were supposed to win World War II. We can easily imagine scenarios in which the United States maybe didn't join and Great Britain was taken over by Nazi Germany, so on and so forth. And I'm going to tell you why these are why historians don't make these sorts of arguments here in a second. And the other one is that um, no matter how much historical evidence you have, you can't move from historical evidence to ontology, mm -hmm. to existence. So the reason why violating contingency is, is a big historical no-no, I can kind of present uh, in philosophy what's called a reductio ad absurdum to use the same sort of argument, apply it to a different situation and show why it's not so great, mm. right? So Christian apologists who are arguing for the resurrection, um, the resurrection had to at some point in history happen because mm. if the resurrection did not happen, humanity would not be redeemed and the whole story about Adam and Eve and the garden, all that would kind of fall apart. Like the biblical prophecy said that Jesus was coming, Jesus came, fulfilled that prophecy. It could no, not it have depends. been otherwise. If you ask, if you ask uh, anyone, uh, any Jew, Jews, they would right, just, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. A Christian reading of the Hebrew yeah, Bible. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, arguments like that were made, and this is where the reductio comes in. Arguments like that were made in the 19th and 20th century, um, usually to really horrible moral effects. So, for example, in the United States, the concept of manifest destiny, the idea that the United States ought to span from one coast to the other coast, and that this was a historical inevitability, mm. that it had to happen, and that God ha had ordained it to happen, was used to justify the, the genocide of the Native Americans. I did not know that. That's right. disgusting. Likewise, the idea that the um, the colonial expansion in the 16th and 17th century by the Europeans, that the Europeans, um, there's a classic question in modern history, which is um, why did the Western powers, why did the Western powers end up in the position that they're in? Like, why is it that the United States, Great Britain, uh, France are first world countries quote unquote, first world countries and parts of Africa are third world countries. Mm. 18th, 19th century, the argument was, well, there had to be something special about these European civilizations, that they were doing something that other nations weren't, and that it was sort of inevitable that Europe would kind of come to this position of power because why wouldn't they? So, both of those arguments presupposed a deterministic view of history, that history had to turn out a particular way. And we know that by studying those historical events, that both of those explanations are wrong. They're wrong because it could have easily been otherwise. Right. When we look at expo explanations for why Europe came to dominate the globe in the 19th and 20th century, it has nothing to do with some sort of preset 
plan or some sort of preset agenda or some sort of special status that the Europeans have. It has everything to do with these sort of random occurrences in the economy and the political structure of Europe in the 16th century um, that all kind of hobbled together, allowed for this sort of thing to happen. But all of that presupposes historical contingency. And if you take away historical con contingency, what I'm saying is that you open yourself up to all of these other arguments that people could put forward that we know are faulty. That makes sense. Mm. I think I'm following. So, um, okay. So in just to just duck back a little bit to World War II, um, are there any like historical events that took place that were written about from eyewitnesses or is it more just faith beliefs like is there any like was anyone resurrected from the dead was anyone walking on water was the, you know <laughs> i mean <laughs> nazis walking across the marshes of something i don't know right um i can't think of any off the top of my head although i'm sure i could probably find some if you gave me a day or two yeah. to look for them as <laughs> <laughs> like um, um better examples would be from the ancient world yeah I do know that there are other, because because the big the big thing obviously is if you accept the claims that that you know Jesus resurrected from the dead based on the evidence, not based on faith. Like let's remove faith, um, mm. then unfortunately you'd have to do the same for so many things. Yes. Right? Like, the, is there any? Are there any people even in the Middle East that have like? Um, similar like uh miracles uh, you know given to them like do you know any of any uh, i know that for example muhammad uh it said that he's uh, of, of of islam he said he split the split the moon uh that he spoke to the the, the, the angel gabriel um mm -hmm. and these are all uh eyewitness well not eyewitness testimonies but they're all written down as um historical um right. are there any right. other uh faiths of the time of jesus time um it, anywhere around the world that had eyewitness testimonies making claims of uh divine intervention or supernatural things that if we were to accept jesus on historical merits would have to accept these other claims as well right and so this gets into the the second big methodological objection that i raised is that um no historian would move from again no academic <laughs> yeah you keep Sorry. slipping back into make your qualifiers your philosophy brain ticks in you like you can't say never you know, yeah. 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 you'd be hard pressed to find a historian that would accept that uh historical evidence and historical documentation somehow leads to ontology and the reason why to make another reductio that you mentioned is because if we accept that standard for christianity uh, unless we're making a, a, a case of special pleading or special bargaining, right? You have to accept that standard for everything else. Mm. So um, an example that predates Jesus would be the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which mm. was a huge influence on the Hebrew Bible. Um, we have solid, concrete archaeological evidence to support that Gilgamesh was a real person. Okay. All the evidence that we have about like what Gilgamesh did with his life comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. 
does that mean that Gilgamesh like went and met the immortal up to Pishtim, that he fought like the snake scorpion man, that he, you know, uh, had marital relations with a goddess? You you ask any Assyriologist, anybody studying the ancient world, like, do you believe Gilgamesh really did those things? Well, no. Mm -hmm. Right? But th this kind of goes back to what I was also mentioning earlier, but the people at the time may have believed that he did mm. because that was the world they lived in. Mm. They lived in a world inhabited by goddesses who wanted to seduce mortal men. So yeah, Gilgamesh could have slept with a goddess like that would made of that would have made sense to them, right? Mm. Um, I could use is the example. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, is it also missing the point too? Because, um, like, I, I, if I was a Christian, I would make the argument that, like, the story of Job, um, of um, the story of like Noah, the story of uh, like a Jordan Peterson version of Christianity, where it's like you remove much of the supernatural. But um, uh, what's the other one? The big fish uh, getting, you know, someone getting swallowed by a yeah. big fish. Jonah, yeah. I would say that those are more written in a mythological, legendary style, where I would say that the Gospels aren't written in that style as much. They're very much written as like, these are the accounts. This is what really happened. Um, and my personal takeaway from that is, is essentially that they were just mistaken. <laughs> like, right. um, well, yeah. they're, they're telling the truth but they were and they, and they believe these things were historical but they're mistaken um so couldn't couldn't someone push back up against what you're saying and saying like the epic of gilgamesh um that you know he may have been a real person he may have been you know um historical to some extent however these other parts like the some parts of abraham's story or moses story mm -hmm. are obviously legendary are obviously myth um uh, mythological yeah, uh, I mean, there's other examples. Right? Oh, okay. So, yeah, like uh, I, I could grant that. Like, okay, well, yeah, we could read, uh, we could read Gilgamesh as being um, mythology, right? So uh, maybe a better example would be the uh, life of the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. Yeah. Right. So uh, again, we have primary sources. Um, that were later canonized in much the same way that the new testament was canonized canonized in the Pali canon but the uh, historical buddha siddhartha gautama um by the historical archaeological record was a real person he had disciples uh those disciples saw him perform miracles right they saw him do things supernatural things uh that they could not otherwise explain so if you accept the sort of criteria that's put forward to accept the resurrection of Jesus, you would have to also accept that Siddhartha sat under a Bodhi tree for 30 days and 30 nights that he battled the God Mari and that eventually he overcame the human condition to obtain, obtain enlightenment release mm. from the cycle of Nirvana, Nirvana. Right? So the, the criteria, my objection would be that the criteria putting forward if you're going to use that okay but if you're consistent with that criteria you also have to accept all these other things yeah i was i was trying to look this up on the side while you were talking because I, I know there's another first century jewish teacher um uh that uh apocalyptic prophet that did some miraculous work i forgot what his name is i'm just typing in like random yeah oh, no no yeah <laughs> I, I don't know their names <laughs> yeah i don't know their names but um 
I took a New Testament class with uh, Luke Timothy John- Luke Timothy Johnson, about as well respected as a of a New Testament scholar as you're going to get. Like the guy's has a ridiculous scholarly output. Um, but he talks about the first century context. Um, there were several people that we know about running around at the time that claimed to be the Messiah and several people running around at the time that were performing miracles. Again, miracles Mm. was just part of the fabric and ethos of first century life in Judea. So Mm. yeah, it's eventually had alternative, alternative facts. Do you, can you, what book is that? What is that called? Uh, Oh, I'll uh, post that in the comments for people to read if they're interested. Yeah. It's it's just called the writings of the new Testament uh, by Luke Timothy Johnson. Um, Johnson is a is a Christian. I, st- I studied with him. It's he's a more, um, I guess, what we would call a liberal Christian. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. He wouldn't he wouldn't argue that the resurrection is historical fact. He would argue that it's a, a, a matter of faith, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. But anyway, oh well, that's that's super interesting. I do. I'll jump onto the um, Q and A because some of the Q and A questions are about the resurrection. In fact, most of them are. Um, <laughs> So I asked a bunch of, um, I tagged um, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, 127 um, Apologetics, uh, X27 Apologetics, I think it's called, um, who both follow me on Twitter, and Myth Vision Podcast. Myth Vision, Derek from Myth Vision was the only one who engaged in in it. And I'm I'm wondering why the Christians didn't um, jump to um, throw some hard questions your way. Um, but Derek from Myth Vision, he's also a naturalist. Um, yeah. And he said, what do you think actually happened uh, in history if the resurrection didn't happen? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I just wanted and, to get your take, like what you think right. happened. Yeah. What do I actually think happened? And I also want to be clear about another thing. Uh, I am yeah. not a New Testament scholar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I studied 20th century history, not first yeah yeah, yeah. anyway um i mean what do i think happened i think that there was a person named jesus and that his disciples believed that he fulfilled all of this prophecy i believe i think that they believed that he performed miracles and i think they believed that he rose from the dead mm. um and i think I don't think we necessarily, I don't think there's a need to say that they were like being deceitful or that they were lying. Um, the fact of the matter is that people believe all sorts of stuff similar to that. I, I have a friend of mine who studies cults, right? People believe the same sorts of things about Jim Jones, but that doesn't lead like credence to the idea that Jim Jones performed miracles, mm. that he actually performed miracles. Hmm. Right. Or that there was actually a, a UFO following the comet Hellbop or whatever comet it was. Right. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example, I'll, a personal example. When I was, I live in the United States. I've lived in the United States my whole life. When I was about four years old and I was riding in a car with my mother, uh, I thought I saw a kangaroo outside. We don't have kangaroo, well, except for <laughs> zoos. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I sincerely believe that. And actually across the United States, there are tens of thousands of people. Pro- I don't know. I'm making this up. I'm guessing there's other people that have seen kangaroos as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I don't think they're being facetious. Maybe some of them are, 
I don't think they're trying to like get personal credit or profit from it. Again, maybe some of them are, but I think it's possible to accept that people believed that they have experienced certain things while at the same time accepting that those things could in actuality not have happened, but yeah. not to demean that person, yeah. right? Take anybody that has any form of like mental illness, right? They believe that certain things in the world are happening. And I'm not saying mm. that the disciples were mentally ill, not what I'm mm. just using this as an example, mm. right? But yeah, I, I believe that they were honest and that they were sincere, but that doesn't mean that I have to accept what they said is true about the natural yeah. world. I, I find it very, very interesting that Mark, the, our earliest gospel, does the original ending of Mark does not include uh, either the virgin birth or the disciples' encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And it, it ends abruptly at the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. There's the empty tomb. Um, I wonder, I, sometimes I wonder if, and also if you read the accounts of like Jesus drifting off into heaven and stuff, I, even when I was a Christian, I would go, ooh, that's, that, that writing style felt weird. That felt weird there. Like, and then all of a sudden Jesus is one of, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this all of a sudden feels very different to the rest of the, so, um, yeah, like I bought into it until that, that moment there. Yeah. Oh, you got another book? I got another book. Um, yeah. This is the uh, story of Christianity um, okay. by Justo Gonzalez. Um, this, by the way, these books that I'm bringing up are like legitimate, like these are like bona fide academic scholars. Like, yeah, uh, Gonzalez is a church historian, and the reason why I bring up this book, there was a lot of debate in the for at the end of the first century and at the throughout the second century about who exactly Jesus was. Mm. And there were early Christians. Um, you have, you have this debate between the, um, it's been a while. So you're, you're testing my knowledge here, but the Alexandrian school of thought and the school in Antioch, these group of scholars who were arguing about whether or not Jesus was divine. Um, and this is like second century. So there is, there is inner, inner debate and conflict about how to interpret the Gospels, like right mm -hmm. out the gate. This is not something yeah. that was like settled and then like just accepted by everybody. But yeah, I, just I do, I do like, yeah, I do like what Ma, uh, what Bart Ehrman says, where he says that Christianity is and never was a monolith. Like there was yeah. never one group right. of people that believed one thing. It's always been contested, debated, you know, things like that. Um, I've got a good question for you. What do you think of Jesus' mythicism? I've heard that tossed around a little bit, and I can't say I'm, su I'm a philosopher in me is coming out again. Um, wh what do you mean? <laughs> what does what so, define that word for me? So to give you some background, um, I um, uh, Jesus' mythicism I, I thought was a really ridiculous claim. Uh, it's the idea that Jesus never existed, that that there was no historical Jesus at all. And I posted an antagonistic claim. I posted an antagonistic Twitter comment that was essentially, um, it's clear to me that 99% of mythicists are just mythicists for the fields. And then Godless Engineer, um, John, um, you know, took offense to that. And then I just said, let's have a chat. And we I jumped on his show. 
and we had a bit of a heated discussion. Um, by the end, we ended up as friends. It was great. Like, you know, mm-hmm. well, he's probably going to jump on the deep drinks sometime. But, uh, but he, but I decided no, I'm going to stand by my claim because I, I get so sick of when people comp tweet to me some hyperbolic claim and then they walk it back as soon as I challenge them on it. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to stand by this, and I built a little syllogism, and we discussed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially. Jesus' mythicism is the idea that the events, I, I might be getting this wrong, but the events of Jesus are not historically, not physically historical. The, 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 the writings of the Gospels were account, were talking about um, not hi- real-world historical events, but they're based on theology uh, um, from Paul, and Paul created this. Um, so, you know, the, you know, when Paul, Paul says that the message that he gets from uh i forgot where it is but the message that that he preaches is that he's learned from the spirit realm so essentially the idea is the gospels came from spiritual ideas um that were given to paul and they weren't jesus wasn't a historical figure he was a these events were things that happened like as a spiritual thing it's it's i mean if you don't know it it's it's be hard for you to comment on it but yeah, yeah. it's uh Okay, so I, I've I've heard similar things. Uh, there was a movement, uh, I think it was in the late '90s, early 2000s, called the Jesus Seminar, um, where mm, they kind of went through and like went through the New Testament and try to determine like, well, did Jesus really say these things? Uh, did he most likely say this or most likely say that? And there were some people in that movement who argued that Jesus himself, Jesus of Nazareth, wasn't a historical figure. Um, and I've heard this. Uh, I've heard several atheists in debates bring up similar positions or make the claim like, well, I don't know if Jesus was a real person at all. Um, I'm not aware of any, again, maybe I should not use such strong language. Mm. Um, I would be very surprised if you could point me to a legitimate New Testament historian or first century historian who would support that position. Yeah, well, that was that was my syllogism. Is I said, people that um, I said most scholars, my syllogism, my weak syllogism was essentially um, most scholars don't. Nine nine percent of scholars don't accept a mythicism as like even a thing that you could investigate. It's, it's just totally bogus in their mind. Therefore, um, because because the because mythicists tend to disagree with the consensus, they have to be doing it for non-historical reasons. Therefore, um, like the conclusion is, they're doing it for the feels. So I, I just typed this out in like five minutes. I know that the there's some issues <laughs> with it, but but something that John John from Goddess and Jane pointed out was that there is an incredible bias. Now this is starting to get conspiratorial, uh, and, and which I, I hate conspiracies. Um, uh, but he said there's an incredible bias in the um, the scholarly world because essentially it's like it's like um, having being a scholar of the moon and then finding out the moon doesn't exist. Like it's it's uh, most of the most most scholars are Christian who who have a vested interest in this. So for me as a as a non non um, uh, academic in these areas, like for example, with vaccines, I point to consensus. For right. um, cancer treatment, I point to consensus. I, I don't, I don't go on these like alternative r- routes. I, 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 I grew up with a lot of that stuff given to me is from my parents and stuff, and I, I l- later found out that homeopathy was BS and stuff. Right. So, um, yeah. so I try and point to consensus, and but he he brought up that point, which I found was really interesting, and he said 
he held up two books, and one was uh, Richard Carrier's book. Um, I forgot what it's called. I'll link in the description again. But he he mentioned that um, that it's been peer reviewed, and it is being peer reviewed. And it's and there's another book that's come out that arrives at like an ag agnostic position of whether or not Jesus exists or not. Um, so. To me, I, I'm still, and you know, John, if you're watching, I'm, I apologize. I'm still, I still think that most <laughs> ministers do it for the feels. However, he opened my eyes to um, actually investigating it as a legitimate thing, and I'm, I'm wanting yeah. to investigate it um, because obviously there's something there that I, I went into that conversation willing to be educated, and I definitely got educated and realized there's much more to it than I thought. And fair enough. And again, I don't. I don't know enough enough about the subject to like offer any like substantive critique other than to agree with what your general sentiment was. Um, I am a, by most people's standard, highly educated, uh, you know, I have a master's degree in history. Um, if there's an area of history that I'm not super familiar with or that I'm unsure about, an appeal to consensus is not shouldn't be viewed in a bad way. You're just accepting what the scholars in the field have come up with. But that's, I guess my, and I'm I don't know this person, and I'm not familiar mm. with the argument, so I'm not like directing this at anybody in particular. But um, you can change historical consensus. Mm. It's not easy. Mm. It takes a lot of time. But the idea that like the the field is dominated by a particular group of people who feel a certain way and that they kind of like push people out. Like I would need to see some sort of evidence for that. I mean, I, mm. I can give an example of, of how this happens. This is a very uh, mundane and boring example, but the, the field that I work in, the philosopher that I examine, uh, his name is Gaston Bachelard. Um, most of the books that I have about Bachelard believe that his philosophy of time, which is what I'm examining, um, is purely phenomenological, that he's talking about um, our immediate sense experience of what time is and how time works. Uh, and one of the landmark books on Bachelard, uh, written by a scholar named Mary Tiles, says that Bachelard engages with Einstein, but it's really just polemical. He's just drawn upon Einstein to kind of lend a little bit of credibility to what his philosophy is saying. I fundamentally disagree with that. And this is like the most prestigious scholar in the field that I'm disagreeing with. Um, I I wrote a paper, sent it out to several publishers. They review peer-reviewed journals. Um, and I got it published in a, in a, in a big American philosophy journal. Um, and that's not to be like braggadocious or anything like that. <laughs> I'm just saying like that's the purpose no, of brag away. That's a cool achievement. Yeah. <laughs> That's the purpose of scholarship is to push consensus, to challenge ideas and to find that area that you think most people are misunderstanding or misrepresenting and to present your case why that is so. Um, could it be that Jesus mythicism or some form of it, it is true? Could be. Um, but as of now, like for the lay person, um, I think you got to go with the scholarly consensus, mm. which is that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. Interesting. I'd love for you to listen to you guys having a chat. You should get him on your channel because I'm sure I'm sure he'd jump on or he'd jump on his channel because he's a 
he's a nice guy and uh and uh he definitely um subscribes to that uh, perspective so i think it'd be interesting for you guys to have a back and forth um um i'll clip this i'll clip this and say that um that michael um, granaldo says um godless engineer is an idiot um, and, <laughs> and richard carry is stupid um no i'm kidding yeah. <laughs> you got to get him by do you have a twitter by the way uh, i don't know oh come on it's, it's Sh- the best should i be on it make, yeah make anti- antagonistic claims and then um people get angry at you and then you jump on their um uh their <laughs> channels and get embarrassed um I didn't think I was embarrassed, but it was it was an interesting conversation. Uh, so, um, just quickly, because uh, I think this question is a, has a misunderstanding of the history of Christianity. Um, so, the person is asking, um, how do you explain the day of Pentecost um, and all other conversions that fit the same pattern in the last two thousand years? And, and and I'll just clarify this by saying that, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Um, Pentecostal Christians or evangelicals believe that that it's the Christianity is being just this like what they experience, but without the drums and the music. Um, you know, people getting saved, speaking in tongues and stuff for two thousand years. Where the more I research into the Pentecostal uh, movement, I'm reading a brilliant book uh, at the moment um, by Ellie Hardy. Um, uh, I forgot what it's called. Um, oh, called. Uh, called uh, beyond beyond belief uh how pentecostal christianity is taking over the world it's a fantastic book on the history of pentecostalism and also i've read um some uh christian text on um the history of the church and and it's from 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 my understanding this perspective of like baptizing the spirit um speaking in tongues healings and stuff that hasn't been a a strong development through the ages of christianity in fact it seems to be some of the early Christians, and it seems to have pick, picked up again in the Pentecostal um, movements of the um, 19 or 18, the, the Isusa Street revivals and things like that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so how do you, like, so it's a bit hard, So, but w- w- how do you explain the, pe- uh, the, the Pentecost? Right. Um, so there are two parts to this. The, the first part I would say, like, and I often get this a lot when I'm talking with people and they're telling me about some sort of religious experience they have. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that I can explain that. Um, how could I? It's a it's a deeply personal, deeply moving, profound experience that someone had with something they believe to be divine. Like, nothing I say is going to, hold a candle to it (laughs) Mm, yeah yeah right it's it's their it's their personal experience um so the second part which i think you picked up on um to say that the conversion experience has been consistent for the last two thousand years like that's a very bold historical claim (laughs) which um i I would need to see like some sort of documentation for it. Mm. I've, I've, I've read about the history of Christianity. Um, I've the Justo Gonzalez book, uh, the story of Christianity is a fantastic, uh, source there. Um, just, I, just, for the, just yeah. for the listeners, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you for a list of books that you suggest the readers, if they want to dive more into what we've talked about, and I'm going to put it in the description. So you guys can <laughs> check that out. Um, 
I would just echo kind of what you said in that last part there. Um, if they're talking about Pentecostalism specifically or the Pentecost experience, uh, speaking in tongues, um, the kind of conversion experience that comes along with that, I would highly encourage them to read about American history, specifically uh, the first and second great awakening. Um, the sort of personalized experience of the the highly personal, highly emotional, um, highly experience driven Christianity that most of us are used to today is relatively new. Uh, it really started with the first and second great awakening, which emphasized this personal experience. If you look at things like the Cane Ridge revival that happened in Tennessee, late 19th century, um, you have these traveling pe preachers that kind of uh, started the, this revival movement. They were highly charismatic, um, very influential speakers that played to people's emotions. And prior to that, if you look at like uh, early Christianity in the United States, like Puritanism was super like stoic. Like you didn't cry, you didn't laugh, like you went to church and you listened to this like super dry sermon that the preacher read, like literally like line by line for like an hour. And that was your church service. Mm hmm the second great awakening was like a reaction to that sort of rationalism, which heavily emphasized like personal experience. Uh, this is where you get like people like I, I come from a very evangelical background. Like you would see like people like dance down the aisles yeah. and, you Same. know, sing, stand up on pews and do like a Russian dance or speak in tongues, uh, prophesy over people like, if that's what they're referring to, historically speaking, that's very new. Uh, and that's that comes out mostly out of American, uh, the evangelical movement that happened in the United States, 19th century. It, I, you might be able to speak to this, but I found something that you just said very interesting there where um, uh, the, the pendulum seems to swing like back and forth and like i know you didn't want to talk about politics but what i'm noticing a lot um uh, on twitter once again or uh, just around the world at the moment is uh, is you know media and, and things have swung very far left and, I, and i'm worried and mark my words that i think there's going to be a, a huge swing back to the to, to the far right um which i, I find is unfortunate because I, I i consider myself part of the center left um so uh and i think that that it's interesting that you said that even within Christianity, um, that it was very rational, very read, you know, this, and then now it's got, it's swung all the way back to the other side. And then even now you see, like, at least from my experience, a lot of the conversations around Christianity that are happening now, um, at least online are very intellectually based. So, I mean, this could be, this is probably biased because I'm just going off what, what I'm saying, but I really like what Michael Jones, uh, do you know Michael Jones of inspiring philosophy? Yeah, I had him on my yeah, channel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, uh, he um, it's actually pretty funny. I'm I'm probably interviewing a Satanist soon. Um, and uh, <laughs> and we're gonna we're we're gonna be drinking tea and scones. Uh, and when I had when I had Michael uh Michael on the podcast, 
the Christian apologist. We're drinking straight whiskey. And I think right. it's just such a funny <laughs> dichotomy there. Michael, I I, uh, I like Michael. I'd uh, you know I'd like yeah. to consider him a friend if he ever came to Australia. I'd love to hang out or something. But he he he's a good um, guy. Yeah, he's a great guy, and um, he he said that you know when it comes to like he worries about these spiritual experiences and this unrationalization of the Christian faith because he said if God's telling you something, it either is already in the Bible, in which case you don't need to be told it by God, or it's not in the Bible and then you should reject it. Like it's it lines up with the Bible and you should reject it. And then secondly, he said that you know the heart is wicked. You know, Jeremiah, quotes Jeremiah, the heart is wicked. Who can understand it? Um, and, and the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can, you know who can understand it? And and I was like, wow. And 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 I was like, that's that seems to be the Christianity that I would I'm more respect these days in regards to that. So it's just we, it's just interesting that do do you know? My question is this is a long, a long ramble, but my question is, do you see this historically speaking? Does the pendulum seem? to swing a lot like that within social, social economic, like social, social groups. Sorry. So it's like, uh, you know, you have like right wing, left wing, then you have like, you know, very far rational, very emotional. Like, you know, was the sixties like a, like it was a pushback from the fifties, the you know? And so it's like the sixties, like free spirit and all that stuff. Like, is it, is this pushback always something that's happened or is it just recently? Mm -hmm. That's a great historical question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does seem to come in patterns, in waves, almost. Um, I'll talk about this within the context of, uh, I, I think creationism might provide a good context here. So um, to bring up another book, um, there's a historian of science named Ronald Numbers. He wrote an absolutely fantastic history of creationism in the United States. Uh, it, it's called The Creationist. Highly recommend. Numbers is like the, the best, like top of the top in terms of historians of science. What a last name too. Like right? it just sounds so like, yeah, this guy's, this guy's an integer, you know, like he's going to get it right. There's no, no yeah, sorry. Probably yeah. Don't mind. No, <laughs> he's about as, uh, as credible as you're going to get as a historian. Um, so he gives a, a really interesting picture, um, to have a long answer to the question you just asked. Yes, I, I, I do think it, it, it goes from rational to emotional, rational to emotional, at least some version of that. So what happened with creationism is that prior to the 20th century, there was only a very small group of Christians who were uh, young earth creationists. Uh, it was really limited to like the Seventh Day Adventist movement and numbers. Like when I say he's like credible historian, like super thorough. Like he he's giving like mm. statistics and he says there was like less than like twenty thousand people in the United States prior to the twentieth century that believed in young earth creationism. Like it's that level of history mm. based off of like primary sources and all this like just a tremendous amount of research. Anyway, what happens is like and. You have coming off of the Second Great Awakening this super emphasis on emotion, personal experience, and then within the creation circle uh, in the 1920s in the United States, you have the Scopes trial, um, which saw was a was a, a court case that happened in the United States about the teaching of evolution in the state of Tennessee. They made a big to do about it. Uh, there was a um, uh, a politician slash lawyer named Bryant 
uh, William Bryant that was brought to the stand and he kind of gives this like triumphalist defense of Christianity and the prosecutor Darrow comes and questions him. And in this questioning, and this was like a national public event that everybody saw mm. Darrow asked Brian some like really simple questions. Like, do you believe that the words of Genesis are literally, literally true? And, and Bryant says, well, yes, of course I believe every word of God. And Darrow says, so you were telling me that the, there was light before that there's a sun created. Right. Where did the light come from? And, and anyway, it's like this sign of like line of questioning and Bryant's like completely stumped. And the idea was, is that Darrow had made like a mockery of Christianity. Well, after that, almost as a response, you have the opening up of uh, private Christian colleges in the attempt to sort of rationalize some of the oh. mainstream critiques that were being labeled against it. So this is the birth of the more like academic form of creationism that you see in the fifties and sixties, not like the Ken Ham version of creationism, but like, <laughs> you know, you get like creationists with actual like science, science degrees and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And so they start coming back to the table. Well, I think Ken Ham anyway, uh, they start coming back to the table and saying like, well, if you examine this aspect of biology, so mm. to answer your question, like from the history that I'm familiar with, I can certainly see that. Um, and there has, I mean, there's always going to be people representing both sides, but what we're seeing now with the, the kind of evolving, no pun intended, of creationism mm. to intelligent design, I think it's, it's kind of a further rationalization of that. So long answer to your question yes i do i do see that historically yeah that's that that's very more thorough um explanation too um i've uh i've got a question that you kind of answered before but i'll ask it anyway because i think it'll be um interesting if you were um if we were to reject naturalism in favor of the claims made in the bible what other events would um would we have to consider as historical using the same criterion so, for example, other religions, like, do you have a, like, could you list some off the top of your head? It's like, would we have to accept, if we were to reject naturalism because of the claims made about Jesus, what other things would we have to believe historically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I need to do a little clarifying on my part as well. Um, mm -hmm. So methodological naturalism provisional naturalism, ontological naturalism, that applies to the natural sciences and the descriptions that the natural sciences have about the world. History also presupposes a type of naturalism, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, we're, we're talking, it's the same word, but it's a little different. Okay. If that makes sense. So mm -hmm. historical naturalism is, it's, it's similar. I'm confusing myself here, but Historical naturalism is the idea that historical events are claimed are, are explained via human causes, human causation. Right. And again, every single academic historian, uh, uh, I can yeah, 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 all yeah, or nothing yeah, language, yeah. Yeah. almost all academic historians operating today assume that mm -hmm. that's the assumption that they operate on. If you want to tell me like what caused World War II. You, you could talk about politics, you could talk about economics, you can even talk about philosophy, right? But 
all of that involves human actions. Some historians will talk about environmental factors. That's also cool because that's also a naturalistic explanation. So that naturalism is presupposed not just in science, but also in modern histories. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah. So the question is, like, if we if we throw naturalism out of the window and accept the resurrection, what other events would we have to accept? Um, basically, the claims of every single culture that has developed a mythology. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> they, oh, they all view their... Now, there's different understandings of myth, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the understandings of myth that a lot of ancient people had is that mythology offered similar explanations that cosmology offers us today. Right. So, um, all mo okay. okay. So I'm most ancient cultures, uh, have origin myths. Most ancient cultures have creation myths about, uh, who they are as a people and where they came from as a people. Um, in most ancient cultures had religious leaders that operated within their community that would work and perform miracles. So if your criteria is, well, there's all this eyewitness evidence and all this documented historical evidence, unless you're making a case of special pleading, which is a logical fallacy where you say, well, I'm the exception, mm -hmm. right? So unless you're doing that, you also have to accept literally every single myth from every single culture that has ever existed. <laughs> yeah, and so right. you you open up the floodgates. And that was kind of my point with the historical methodology, with the reductios that I was trying to make. Mm. Like history doesn't deal with ontology. And if you want to make the argument that it does, you have so severely lowered the bar of historical criteria that you just have to accept everything. Yeah. Because I don't know what other grounds you'd stand on other than to say, well, Christianity is a special exception to that. And then I would say, well, why is that? I don't know what the answer to that would be. Interesting. Interesting. Um, two more questions. Um, and then we'll wrap up, but, how um we know that we can't account for consciousness perfectly yet mm. but if you were to give your best guess <laughs> yeah uh this is another this is like me talking about the new testament like i have no <laughs> clue what i'm saying right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah but um my best guess uh i think that consciousness will ultimately be explainable via biological processes. Yeah. I, ultimately, I would say that it it is most likely, like I'm like 95% certain about this, a function of the brain. Interesting. If it's not, I've got some problems. <laughs> mm. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's uh it's one of it's a huge mystery. It's, it's it's one of those things too that if you if we discovered an answer and it was not a biological process, so much like our it's almost like we it's like we you know so much of the the universe we would realize is not explained in the way that we thought we had explained it. It'd be huge. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, area of research. 
Um, I've got the um, the the Black Wall Companion to Consciousness up there. Um, nice. And uh, I haven't. I, I'm too scared to get into it because I know that it's going to be nuts. Um, uh, yeah, I, I will say just because I've been throwing out resources, uh, I think that's a fantastic place to start. Um, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, if you don't want to go buy a book, uh, that's kind of like the standard of philosophical writing online. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, just Google philosophy of mind, Stanford Encyclopedia. That's going to give you, not only will it give you a fantastic overview of the current debates happening in the philosophy of mind, it'll also give you a works cited page of 50 different resources you can go and check out. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll also link that down below. And the last um, question I have is regarding your God belief, hmm. what evidence would change your mind? Yeah. Um, that's a, I think that's a really good question. Again, um, I kind of echoing what I said before, what would change my mind would be a explanatory gap within our current worldview that was ultimately answered via supernatural causes. Uh, consciousness, I think, like I said before, probably the best modern example of that. You saw that a little bit with um, the intelligent design move movement in the 90s with uh, Michael Behe. Is it Behe or Behe? I can never remember. Uh, yeah, Michael Behe, yeah. Behe's his Darwin's black box where he argued for this idea of irreducible complexity mm -hmm. um, that was ultimately refuted by a lot of different biologists who decided to engage with him. But if there was an area of nature that we could find that would open up, that would lend positive, credible evidence for the supernatural, um, that would cause me to rethink my position. If, if, I talked to Dr. French uh, five years from now, and he said, well, as a matter of fact, Michael, I've done five double-blind studies on psychic phenomenon, and guess what? Psychics, psychic powers are real. I, I've got to... That wouldn't cause me to believe in God, but that would yeah. open up the gate for the supernatural. As yeah, it stands, I don't... Yeah. Wouldn't they become just natural phenomenon then? You know what I mean? Like, right. like dark matter, as far as we know, is a supernatural phenomenon now. But as soon as we explain it, it becomes natural. Well, I think it would be, um, maybe natural is not the right word, uh, non-material. Ah, uh, that's good. Well, hang on. Isn't there, aren't there some things in the, in the universe now that are non-material, like a photon's material? Um, is gravity material? <laughs> Fantastic questions. Um <laughs> We can. Um, do so, you want to talk about do, that? Do, do, do you maybe do you maybe mean spooky non-material? Is that what you mean? <laughs> right. So, um, uh, I, I think that there are certain mathematical explanations for reality that may not necessarily be reducible to material, and and for that reason, I'm not a strict materialist. Um, so, photons might purely be mathematical entities. Don't know. Yeah not my area again um what what psychic phenomena would show is that there are higher level non-material agents at work slash play yeah that makes sense 
I would just need to see that that gap. So what would change my mind would be something like consciousness or something like psychic phenomenon that wouldn't fit in with our existing paradigm. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I've got a bonus question and this is just a fun bonus question. Uh So the bonus question is um, if you could believe in one type of existence after death, right? Um, Mm. So either reincarnation, the biblical heaven, um, you're in an alien arcade and when you die, you take off the VR glasses and your life was just one big, you know, like VR experience. What would you choose? And like, as soon as you believe it, it was reality. What would you choose as your favorite type of after death thing? Mm. Like reincarnation or yeah. Uh, I've, I've got a, that's an easy question for me. Um, the ancient Egyptian afterlife. Oh, yeah. what, I don't even know what tell, tell me about the ancient Egyptian afterlife. Never, the, I don't even know what the ancient Egyptian afterlife is. It's the this is the history teacher in me. Um, yeah, uh, the ancient Egyptians. Well, uh, assuming that my, by the way, um, if you haven't watched it, go watch Moon Knight, the uh, Marvel's new series. Uh, he's possessed by an Egyptian deity. I won't give any spoilers, but um, the ancient idea Egyptian. Assuming that I could pass the test, which was you have to have your heart weighed against a feather to see if you've created more uh, order than chaos in your life. And if you did not, then you're eaten by Amit, which is this crocodile leopard thingy. I I wouldn't want that, right? Oh, man. I need to look into Egyptian (laughs) mythology. This is it's good stuff. Yeah. But the the Egyptian heaven, uh, referred to as the field of reeds, was basically like all the best aspects of this life um no pain no sorrow um all just all the good stuff forever right so like for the egyptians like what the good life meant was like you had an area of land that you could work that always produced the best fruit and wheat like you always had like the best beer available to you all the best produce available to you you could work the fields if you wanted something to do, but if you didn't feel like working the fields that day, you could create these like little clay people that would go and work the fields for you, and you could no like way. take a nap and drink beer if you wanted to. Yeah, I think that's what I would go with. This kind of reminds me of Mark Twain's. Have you seen that Mark Twain video? Uh, it's like a video by Mark Twain where the devil appears and they're all like clay figures and stuff and, oh it's spooky anyway oh, and, and your pets would be there too your deceased oh pet. that's yeah. so awesome yeah that's mm-hmm. that's cool yeah whatever afterlife has uh our pets would be great um besides our old cat he was a dick um <laughs> but, uh but anyway um thank you so much uh michael for coming on the deep drinks podcast this has been a one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, if anyone is uh, interested in um, learning more about Michael or uh, learning about philosophy and history, I definitely recommend checking his channel. Links are in the description. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. I really appreciate you having me. I had a lot of fun with this. Thank you.